Last weekend, we mentioned that the United Kingdom's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had hosted a summit on the dangers of AI, and it was held at Bletchley Park, the site of the celebrated Enigma code-breaking effort back in World War II. The UK government said that they hoped the presence of the world's richest ever entrepreneur, Elon Musk, would attract international attention, and it did. And with an interview with the UK Prime Minister live-streamed on the social media platform that he owns, X, formerly known as Twitter, he made headlines as well. Having a referee is a good thing. And if you look at any sports game, there's always a, a referee. And, and nobody's suggesting, I think, to have a sports game without one. Um, and, and I think that's the, the right way to think about this, is for, um, for government to be a, a referee to make sure the sportsmanlike conduct and, and, and that the public safety is, is, is addressed. And two days later, Elon Musk told the podcaster Joe Rogan he bought Twitter to save it from an existential mind virus, though exactly what that meant wasn't clear over the two hours and 40 minutes of their conversation. But Musk himself seems to have sped up Twitter's extinction. He's made a series of changes over the past year which have slashed the company's financial value by more than half and destroyed most of its value to its users, including the media. Over the previous 15 years, Twitter was much used by the media because it turned out to be a really powerful way of spreading and sharing news online and also commenting on it. Last Wednesday, a bunch of media folks met in Auckland to host a wake for Twitter and bury the bird, the bird being Twitter's distinctive logo until Mr Musk replaced it with an ugly black letter X. The organiser was Vaughan Davis, the founder of marketing agency The Goat Farm, who used the platform itself to lure people to the event last week. We're taking the opportunity to celebrate what's been before and look forward to what comes next part uh, social function, it's part piss up, it's part panel discussion and really it's just our opportunity to say um, thanks, well done, farewell to a social media platform which I think gave a lot of us an awful lot over the last 15 years. And we'll hear more from him on that in a minute but Media Watch's Hayden Donnell was there at the Bury the Bird event in Auckland last week where he also asked two local social media pioneers on the panel that night former Media Watch host Russell Brown and the spin-offs Anna Rafferty Connell, is it really game over now for the platform that Musk has mangled into X? Kia ora, Anna and Russell, and welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, hi. Can we just start maybe by talking about why Twitter was actually good as a news-gathering and news-disseminating tool? I think my first moment of realising that it was good for news was the Arab Spring and it was partially because you were getting um, a range of different kind of experiences that were maybe not being reported in the mainstream media but came to be reported in the mainstream media so it, it was a tool we could get I guess citizen journalism um, that could still go through the process of kind of rigour that's required in terms of Reporting, and I think it, it's been a really useful place for on-the-ground coverage. It's been a useful place for finding sources, for finding stories. Twitter leaned a lot, quite heavily, on, I guess, the culture of news and the culture of journalism in, it, in its foundational days. I vaguely remember, as a Herald Online journalist, reading it just to find out what people were talking about, what people were angry about, 
and often maybe actually what was happening in a live sense, and it has that has gradually eroded. Yeah, absolutely. One of the great virtues of Twitter was that it was a live medium, whether it was just watching a live TV show or whether it was a significant event like the Indian Ocean tsunami, like the tube um, terrorist attacks in London, and then the earthquakes in Christchurch, where people actually acquitted themselves pretty well as citizen journalists. It looked like this might work. You know, it, it actually looked like it could be really valuable. It could be valuable for emergency services. Uh, flash forward to today, and it's impossible to tell what is happening in Gaza. You know, it, there is no possibility of absolutely trusting most of what you read, which is alarming. Is that just because it became an algorithmic monster like everything else? I mean, now that you look back on it kind of quite naively, the idea of a chronological feed, you could kind of just talk a whole lot of rubbish, and it didn't kind of ripple out beyond that particular community. I mean, in a way, like, early Twitter had kind of a feeling of sort of the, the, the old school, you know, internet forums and message boards. It felt quite contained, despite it being a platform that was um, hugely favoured by media. We, we talked a lot tonight as event Bury the Bird. We're now downstairs in an alcove, <laughs> grotty old concrete stairs. We talked a lot about different stuff that might have been responsible for the downfall of the platform. There was Donald Trump, there was obviously Elon Musk who has degraded it in a multitude of ways. But can we really pin it on any one thing? There's, as you just mentioned, the algorithms, the main character syndrome, the way that it facilitates bullying. Well, oddly enough, I was wondering while we were sitting there talking, maybe it's the case that, that no online social forum can last and this thing has to be, has, has to be reinvented fairly regularly. Because, uh, I mean, I've been on the internet long enough to have been a Usenet user. Um, I presided over some pretty lively forums on my own website, Public Address. That, that was a really great place for a while, but the moderation duties got too much. And then everything moved over to places where there is no moderation and no one's responsible, and it got worse. I don't quite know where we go. But I still want to chat to people online. I enjoy it. Do you remember Napster, the music downloading? <laughs> there was yeah. chat forums on that. <laughs> it was great. I mean, I think one of the things I've always been... I remember there was abuse on that, though. I yeah, well, you get abuse wherever you went, <laughs> Wherever right? you like, go on the internet. Anywhere where you are not a, a living, breathing human standing in front of another human, where that creates um, all sorts of, you know, kind of obligations around how you treat somebody, I think you're going to come across that. Is Twitter any use to a news organisation now for its journalists and for the advancement of its brand? Look, I think it still functions to a certain degree for plenty of journalists as something of a shortcut to, um, I guess, real-time events. You know, it's, I guess the irony for me is that Twitter built its back to a certain extent, on being a real-time current affairs news platform. It has been a platform used very heavily by journalists and media. And yet, in terms of what you actually get back from it, around, you know, it, it, it's never been a place where people have been like, yeah, I want to spend all my time here clicking off to look at links on other people's sites. It's always been quite a heavily conversational environment. And so, in terms of... I guess the main reason media might use a platform like Twitter now, which might be around putting 
what you've written or created in front of an audience and then getting them to go and look at it, that that is, you know, I think that's probably massively diminished and or, it was never, or never was great. You know? I don't think it was ever a great source of traffic and NPR famously left it recently and they've got, their traffic went down 1%, I think. Do we always overvalue it? I think it had... M- far more cultural value as a platform for media and journalism than it ever had any actual real tangible value. It created celebrities out of journalists to a certain extent and I'm not entirely convinced that that was a great thing and I think you know the Washington Post has had some quite interesting experiences with employing journalists with large social media platforms and then I guess the kind of repercussions of that. I mean I think we always overcooked it slightly in terms of it being a reflection of what people in this country cared about. Uh, there was a period where there was kind of, it felt like there was a direct pipeline between Twitter and what would appear on the homepage. Uh, and its death in many ways will possibly stop distorting journalists' perceptions of what the country cares about. I'd hope so. Yeah, I, I think there is still going to be newsworthy things said and done on Twitter and other social media platforms. But there's certainly no sense that somewhere you have to be as a journalist. That said, um, I have particular specialist subject areas, drug policy, urbanism, things like that. There are networks of people that are on Twitter that I don't know how to find anywhere else. I mean, I spend much more time on Blue Sky now, but I can't replicate those networks. So it is still a really good way of getting up close to expertise. Then again... There's a very large side of Twitter that is utterly hostile to expertise. Is the Gaza conflict kind of emblematic of its decreasing utility as a source of news? Is it kind of... The <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's like, it's like the, the ultimate fog of war. Um, something flashes up and you do not know whether it's completely fake, whether it's exaggerated it's really hard to engage with what's happening when you don't know whether what you're seeing is true. And is that just Elon Musk's fault? Fake stuff has always afflicted the internet. Is it just a symptom of advancing technology that stuff is easier to fake? Is it Elon Musk or is it us? Well, I I think one thing you can definitely blame Musk for is ruining the verification system. That actually was... It did provide a degree of trust. Now... Uh, he's created a situation, a situation where anyone with a blue tick is not to be trusted. He's completely inverted it. Every single decision he makes makes the user experience worse. Journalists, writers love a narrative, and it is, I guess it's quite nice to be able to talk about the Arab Spring as, I guess, the genesis of kind of real-time current affairs on Twitter and now Gaza and what's happening there as sort of the death of Twitter... Uh, in terms of that particular utility. I mean, I think... I don't think you can talk about it as something that was just kind of destined. I think there have been hands um, involved in shaping what Twitter has become. And I guess where and how it's become a magnet for um, certain kinds of people with certain agendas. But I think the removal of headlines from news stories, um, you know, that might be something that people might think about from a news media point of view as just journalists having a bit of a wire about their headlines going missing. But actually, if you think about the fact that people weren't really clicking on news stories... At least if they saw them on Twitter with a headline, there was some sense of context being delivered on that platform. And 
that's kind of gone now and you've also just got this very strange hierarchy of authority which is dependent on whether or not you're prepared to pay money to subscribe. Is part of the death of social media, I mean it's Elon Musk, it's Donald Trump and maybe Trump in particular, but it's sort of this this realisation that might makes right when you're in these kinds of spaces. And if you can say something forcefully enough and loudly enough, Donald Trump was the master of this, uh, that you can distort, you have a reality distortion field that you can generate, and that's really what's eroded its utility as a news source and probably as a, a nice place to be. I mean, there's nothing wrong with an argument. People have been arguing on the internet since it was the internet. That's quite fun, but it does feel different now. It's harder to know exactly who you're arguing with than what you're arguing about. You ended up with social media platforms, and I think it's really important that we draw a kind of a line and a distinction between something like Twitter and, say, for example, something like TikTok. I don't think TikTok is dying. I don't think it's dead. I think it's thriving. Um, but it's a completely different kettle of fish. The thing is, is that you ended up with numbers games there where you could amass a following in ways that we perhaps have not been able to do before, uh, which rivaled the reach of mainstream media. And so you immediately created a kind of, you know, there wasn't just one pillar of truth anymore. There were now distinct and different realities that you could opt into if you wanted to or not. And I think any platform where people are given the capacity to attract and grow kind of followers, which is essentially the story of, I guess, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to a certain extent, yeah, any platform where you are able to amass more followers than some quite large mainstream media outlets means you are essentially a rival to them. Yeah, look at me, I am the media now, as the meme goes. <laughs> Just lastly, do you have any predictions for the future? Are we heading into a blessedly post-social media age? Are we going to reinvent Twitter? Is there something else coming along? So I don't think so. I think Twitter specifically belongs to a particular era of social media networking. I'm delighted if people are finding their bliss on other platforms like Blue Sky or Mastodon or, God forbid, Threads, but that was of a time and place. I think what we see now is the rise of video in an enormous way, in a way that's kind of all-consuming and also an entire generation's mode of communication and everybody can be a creator and everybody can reach a variety of people and it's kind of fragmented in a way that Twitter never was and I think that particular era of social media networking is probably done. Easy for you to say Anna, you already deleted your Twitter account. Uh, Russell, what a bummer for you. You've spent years building up 75,000 followers. You must be kind of grieving if this is the end. Less than I thought actually. Um, because I was there early and because I'm quite good at it uh, I ended up being one of the four accounts recommended to new users. There was a period where my follower account was going up by thousands a week, and, and that stopped and then it came back again. But uh, the thing about Twitter is I think it is now past the point where it can evolve. The thing that, the, that a lot of people forget about Twitter is that most of what we think about as its core functionality, things like retweets, things like hashtags, they were all created by its users, and the people running it responded to that. Musk has completely inverted that, and now he's handing down these edicts that make it objectively worse. 
And I think that's where it's going to run into a wall. With that cheery thought, thank you so much, guys, for joining me in this stairwell under a bar. I appreciate your time. I hope the man who coughed gets better. (laughs) That was former Media Watch host and current listener columnist Russell Brown. And also we heard there from Anna Rafferty Connell, the head of audience at the spin-off. And they were talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell at Bury the Bird, an event in Auckland chewing over what went wrong with Twitter. Now, that event was instigated by a former fan of the platform, Vaughan Davis, who's the founder of the marketing agency The Goat Farm and formerly the host of a radio show all about technology and social media, Sunday Social. So I asked Vaughan Davis, what did Twitter, now called X, really do for us that any other online service didn't? Most social media channels before then and, and since have kind of been about connecting either to celebrities or following celebrities or connecting with people you used to know, like you know Facebook and, and LinkedIn sort of uh, trades on that. Twitter was different. What Twitter did was gave us the opportunity to connect to people because of what they said, what they thought, and who they really were. And that was pretty powerful. Um, it really developed into something whose, whose USP was microblogging. Was that the key to it, that you know, in a fairly short range of characters, you could actually express something beyond the headline sophistication, but, you know, less than an essay, so you could do it pretty rapidly. That was a key uh, thing in in having its audience swell and develop into millions really rapidly. Yeah, I think it made it easy and difficult at the same time. Limiting things to 140 characters meant, oh, gosh, I don't have to record a video or some audio or write some big, long essay. I've just got to come out with a little digital haiku. And the flip side of that, it, it was sometimes challenging, you know, to encapsulate your thought into those 140 characters. And certainly people, you know, who, who worked or spent their recreation as writers enjoyed that challenge. And I think that drew people to it as well. And what sort of communities did it create if collections of people that perhaps other tech apps didn't because I ask that because you know journalists often say uh, and drop into their copy you know that sometimes journalists have to remember the world isn't Twitter these are actually communities drawn from a relatively small pool of online users when you think of the biggest applications and services like you know Facebook and things like that. Yeah, it was always really important to remember that, uh, you know, Twitter was not the world and it wasn't even the online world. You know, it was heavy on tech. It was uh, heavy on media. It was heavy on politics. So if you're a politician, let's say, going there and, and that was your view of the world, it was it was a very skewed one. But if you were within those worlds and wanted to connect to other people and, you know, media, tech, politics, um, the sort of the, the geeky creative fringe of the New Zealand online world, it was a great place to be. Musk gets a lot of the blame from people. He's become the lightning rod for it. The changes he's made don't seem to have made it uh, any better. Uh, in fact, made it a lot worse in a lot of ways. And do you blame him specifically? Or was the tide perhaps going out on that platform even before he took it over about a year ago? I think the tide was going out on Twitter before Musk took it over. Uh, you know, a few people have pointed towards Trump, Putin, you know, that, that kind of era Brexit as a time when uh, Twitter became a space where people were able to polarise people and, and, and put people into tribes. What he's trying to do really is just go, OK, we've got this asset for whatever reason I bought it. How do I, uh, how do I find a profitable future for it? Because it's really never had a profitable past. And we heard Anna Rafferty Connell uh, talking to Hayden earlier saying, and, and Russell Brown making the point that almost none of the information you see from Gaza, the Israel conflict that's going on right now, 
is reliable or often credible. It's just impossible to know what's propaganda, what isn't, because the moderation's just gone. And Anna pointing out, you know, a lot of people started paying attention to it in another sort of flashpoint in that part of the world, the so-called Arab Spring. Uh, do, do you see it that way, that it's just become less and less of a reliable tool for, you know, sharing that, what people used to call citizen journalism, that user-generated yeah. content that um, that could be created and shared almost instantly and was pretty valuable? I think all, all digital media and social media channels have become a little less reliable than they once were. You know, there was a, there was a time when really they were just an extension of the real world platforms they were built off. Um, and I think what it needs is for consumers of the media to now take on a lot more of that responsibility to decide for themselves uh, what is trustworthy and what is not, rather than leaving it to the editors. And I think that's a shift, and I don't think it's going to it's not going to wind back. Is when people talk about the struggles of legacy media, uh, the tide going out on them in the in the digital world, they're thinking of like maybe broadcasters that have been around for maybe 50, 60 years or newspapers that could have been around for a, 150 years or, or something like that. But has Twitter kind of gone through a, a life cycle where it's become a kind of legacy type product in the digital world within a little more than 15 years? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Anna made the point, uh, you know, she she used the word error. And I think that's a, that's a great word. Uh, and I think that that type of community-based, benign, um, you know, happy, clappy uh, social media that Twitter was at its best, you know, those days might have gone. And we've moved on from that into the uh, the more perhaps cynical, polarized uh, social media environment we find ourselves in today. But, you know, for me, Bury the Bird was uh, a bit like a good funeral. You know, it was a a celebration of the good things and and the life of the departed as much as a a mourning for the uh, for the death. Yeah, it isn't quite all over, though, is it? Because like legacy organizations, there are a lot of users that, you know, even if it's not what it was and not as useful to them, they'll stick around on it. It's like Russell Brown said, it just can't evolve anymore. It's kind of had it. Um, do you think it is now definitely a slow decline or is there a possibility it could um, it could revive in some way? Yeah, sh- short of quantum changes from uh, the new ownership, I think it is in slow decline. And part of that, and Russell touched on this, is the creation of the platform has passed from the users to the owners. You know, a lot of the great things about Twitter were made by the people who, I'm going to say, lived there. Uh, for their own benefit. And now changes and developments on the platform are being made by the owner for the benefit of the owner. So you used it in real life uh, for tweet ups and getting together with people, you know, outside the digital realm, like Barry the Bird, you know, your your wake for Twitter. Um, Are you personally sad? You're going to miss it or it's just, okay, on to the next thing, uh, creative destruction, not necessarily a bad thing? I am sad, uh, and this is you know this is why I threw a funeral um, for the perhaps only five thousand, ten thousand people in New Zealand who really deeply engaged with it. It was a great moment in history. You know, we made personal connections, we made business connections, we learned things, we got close to people we'd never otherwise get close to, and and that time has passed. What's going to come next? Don't know. Um, are we just aging out of it? And is you know TikTok and Instagram and Threads and that offering the same thing to the users that are there right now? I don't think so. Uh, but you know, always have an optimistic eye to what comes next, and always stay curious. Yeah. So when you said you could meet people, form communities that could spill over into real life the way you used it, but did did you actually feel any closer to the likes of uh, you know? 
Sam Neill or uh, Stephen Fry, you know, these heavy users of the internet who are prominent on the platform. Um, did, did you really feel connected to them if you said something and they responded in, in text? I think we all did. And I, and I think, uh, you know, speaking to some of those people who wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't otherwise connect to, they felt closer to their public, if you like, uh, than, than they would have previously. You know, wind back 50 years, you know, the Beatles are in the press a lot at the moment. Um, you know, if you're a Beatles fan in 1965, you'd write them a letter and nothing would ever come back. But if you're a, uh, you know, a Neil Finn fan in, you know, 2015, you'd see him on Twitter, you'd say, hey, I really loved that lyric that really got to me, man, that was really cool. And you'd say, oh, thanks. And you have a bit of a chat about it. And that was that kind of a magical time. I think it was really special. Yeah, easier to sort of tweet at celebrities, isn't it? Um, rather than have to chase their car like the Beatles, you know, screaming and wrenching your hair and hoping the car will stop. Yeah, the the, <laughs> the, the hard day, if they remade A Hard Day's Night in 2023, I don't think it would be quite as exciting. <laughs> Indeed. Well, finally, Vaughan, I can recall you used to have a radio show that was all about tech and social media. I can remember you saying, for example, that during the controversy about hashtag Oscars so white. Do you remember that? Uh, Oscar yeah. was, was, was apparently oblivious to the fact that very few people of colour were nominated or winning awards and they had to sort of check themselves and say, oops, do we have a bit of a bias here? Huge backlash against uh, the Oscars. I remember you saying at that time, look, this is the internet age. The internet can create something to replace that pretty quickly. I mean, in that instance, it didn't necessarily happen. But do you still believe that, so the things that made Twitter and the good parts of that can maybe live on in one of the replacements in the other alternative sites, Blue Sky, whatever, that are being created to satisfy perhaps the same online habit? Yeah, I think there's a need. I think there's a goodness in people. I think there's a, a hunger to positively connect and, and support each other and, and form communities. And that's that's never changing. You know, the internet comes and goes, but those human needs never change. So, you know, if someone comes up with a platform and there was talk in the room, what if someone came up with a, a New Zealand Twitter, you know, a Kedaru or whatever it is, um, you know, either locally or globally, uh, and, it, and it strikes that right chord? Yeah, I think it could all happen again. That was social media enthusiast Vaughan Davis, who's the founder of the marketing agency The Goat Farm, and he was the organiser of Bury the Bird, which brought together media folks in Auckland last week to lament the rise, fall and demise of Twitter, now known as X, under the mismanagement of Elon Musk.